Hey, hey, y'all. Welcome to Holy Coitus. Holy Coitus is a community of hoes. H-E-A-U-X. We are humans who engage in consensual coitus, are kind to ourselves and partners, creative, fully embodied, unapologetic, powerful, and free. My mission is to encourage everybody and everyone to claim or reclaim their sexual agency and voice. Regardless of what parts you were born with or change, where you live, what you did in the past, what you plan to do in the future, whether you've had zero sex partners or countless in a week, your whole story is welcome here. You are welcome here. Let's dive in to this podcast episode. Hey, hey, y'all. Welcome to my little corner of the world. My name is Miss Holy Coitus or Janae. Either one works for me. And you can find me on Instagram at Holy Coitus. H-E-A-U-X-L-Y. Coitus. C-O-I-T-U-S. I think that all of us need to be hoes. And a hoe is someone who only engages in consensual coitus. It's kind to themselves and their partners creative fully embodied unapologetic powerful and free a little bit about me i was a purity culture virgin for 31 years and then i went to therapy and i decided that 31 years is plenty of time to not have sex so i decided to start a hoe phase and as i started my hoe phase i became enamored by other people's coitus stories sex stories hoe stories and I was finally able to share mine. And so I love talking about people's lives and what they choose to do or not to do with their bodies because the way that I grew up, we didn't have many choices at all. And and there was so much shame and there was just so much grief and so much hmm, lack of information, lack of creativity. And so I want to change that. I strongly, strongly believe in the power of the well-told narrative. So these are just regular folks that I have a conversation with, regular people, just like you. And today is a great human being. Her name is Melissa, and I can't wait for you to meet her. We talked and talked and talked. You know, I really thought about... mm, I really thought about cutting this podcast episode in half because it is so long, but it is all gold and you are going to fall in love with Melissa. So you might have to pause it a little bit, wait, you know, listen to it over the next couple days, whatever. But oh my gosh, her story is so powerful. And I think you're going to um, be encouraged in your whole phase, your whole journey, um, just by listening to her story. So Um, You can find her on Instagram at The Glory Hole, and that is T-H-E-G-L-O-R-Y-W-H-O-L-E. Without further ado, this is Melissa's host story. Stay tuned at the end so that you can see more about Alyssa and, and learn a little bit more about my project. Okay, everyone. Welcome to Holy Coitus. This is my little podcast, my little corner of the world. Uh, Today I have a guest and I'm super excited because I've been following her on Instagram and she is all the things. And so welcome, Melissa. Uh, Can you introduce yourself? Give people just a small snippet of who you are? Yes. Yes, what I'm doing. 
Um, I'm Melissa, and I started an Instagram account just several weeks ago for a memoir that I've been writing off and on for mm, almost 15 years. Um, it's called The Glory Hole, W-H-O-L-E. Those who get that really get it, and I love my title. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm writing about the trauma of being uh, a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist on both sides of the family um, in a very um, strict cult-like version of Seventh-day Adventism, uh, super fundamentalist, um, and that involves purity culture, it involves, um, oh gosh, everything that's evangelical and fundamentalist horrible, and uh, how I broke away from the church and um, have been dealing with the fallout, basically, of that for 30 years. Mm. Oh, so many. Okay, so for listeners who are not familiar with evangelical and fundamental, can you give, like, a basic, like, two, three sentence of what those are, what that means, so that we have, like, a, a, a foundation of, like, why this sure. is significant? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, fundamentalists, um, evangelical is just basically like super missionary, just proselytizing to the world type of thing. Um, fundamentalists are, uh, they believe every single word of the Bible is actually true. In fact, I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday who said, oh, I didn't realize until I was an adult that the story of Job in the Bible was an allegory. And I was like, fundamentalists don't believe that. They believe it's all very, very true. And um, so every word is the word of God. And, um, and then Seventh-day Adventists have an extra layer that they add on top of that where they uh, they follow the um, the Jewish rules of like from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. You do absolutely nothing but worship God, um, and they follow all the dietary rules of no shellfish, no cloven hooves, no blah blah blah. Um, and uh, so they go to church on Saturdays. And what else, what are their other differences really? Um, they think they're super different, but actually, as I'm learning in the deconstruction community, they're just like basically every other hardcore fundamentalist church, mm -hmm, other mm -hmm. than that Saturday thing. They have their own prophet, uh, who was oddly a female, even though they don't allow women to be ordained. Go figure that one. Really? Um, they have their own prophet, like the Mormons? Uh-huh. Yeah. Her name was Ellen, uh, Ellen G. White. And sometimes they abbreviate E.G. White. So, of course, as kids, we all called her Egg White. But, um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but, um, yeah, her story, it's bizarre. In the 1850s or 60s, whenever, all, whenever the Mormon church was starting, there was this huge rash of evangelical, you know, they were all, oh, no, it had to be the 1830s or something, because I think they thought the world was ending in 1840-something. Mm. And all these prophets started all these churches, uh, around this end-of-world times idea. And um, the Mormons and the Adventists somehow became huge religions. And um, so their prophet, Ellen White, was hit in the head with a rock when she was nine. And from then on, she started seeing visions of God. Mm. And somehow no one connected that with traumatic brain injury. <laughs> they just thought she was divinely inspired. And... Yes. Um, Wow, but it was really traumatic brain injury. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. And That's I just 
just learned recently, actually, that Harriet Tubman has a very similar story. She got hit in the head with a rock as, in, as a child, and she saw visions from then on. And I just always think of what a difference, of what good she did versus what evil Ellen White did. And yeah, you know? absolutely. So does she have like a book of the Bible, like book of the? Did she write something and then people? She did. Okay. Yes, she has. She wrote yards and yards of books. I used to have this whole matching set of them that my parents had given me. Mm. Um, Councils on the Adventist home, councils to a good wife, you know, Mm. raising your children. She also did these very flowery, big um, histories of, well, histories, but projecting forward of uh, the way the world was going to end Mm. and, you know, the faithful are going to be persecuted and have to run to the hills, you know, all that kind of Armageddon type of stuff. Yeah, she controlled everything. She had all these dietary rules. You couldn't eat, uh, you couldn't have pepper or mustard because spices inflamed the sexual desires. They they made you hot and spicy. Well, of course um, mustard does that, for sure. Yeah, totally crazy. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So... How how does the Seventh Day Adventist Church move from woman prophet to no preachers that are women? Like how wh- what is that? Can how did they do that? Isn't that bizarre? It is They're, bizarre. It is so bizarre. She was never ordained herself. She was never a pastor. She just preached everywhere and wrote the books, and everybody followed her. It's the strangest, you know, schism dichotomy, you know, in in their theology, and no one that I've ever heard can explain it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, they all say women have their place, and they're For important. Sure. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, of course. But um, I just found a paper that I posted on Instagram recently of, from a you know high-ranking Seventh-day Adventist guy in Michigan who wrote this whole paper on why feminism is damaging and the whole feminist argument for ordaining is uh is evil basically and Mm. it was amazing i I mean it was so archaic feminism is based on lesbianism and witchcraft basically Mm -hmm. and this was in 2001 he was writing i mean Mm. it's it's mind-boggling yeah 20 years ago excellent yeah so we have the Seventh-day Adventist uh, belief system, and then we have evangelicalism and then fundamentalism. Can you talk about the cult side of all of this? Yeah, well, it's, you know, Seventh-day Adventists would rather kill themselves than be identified as a cult, but they really are. You know, they have their own school systems. They have their own mm. universities. They even have their own medical school. They, um, and... Some, I, I think there are some fairly liberal-ish versions of Seventh-day Adventism, but just not the one I was raised in. I was raised in um, a very small town in Michigan where there were, you know, ad, lots of Adventist schools. There was a university. That's where their seminary is. Um, and we never, I never had contact with the outside world until I learned to drive and started taking myself to the local public school looking for a boyfriend. Um, because I just knew in the whole purity culture system, uh, cause I just, I never attached morality to sex, even, uh, even being, having it pounded into my head forever. I just 
never did. And so when I was ready to have sex in high school, I was like, well, I can't do it in the Adventist system. That'll get gossiped about, and mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. So I went shopping. Excellent. And I, <laughs> as soon as I could drive, I went shopping at the local public school and found myself a boyfriend. Um, oh. So, uh, but other than that, that was my first contact, really, with mm-hmm. the outside world. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a generation under you. Um, and I had always, not mm, like, so my generation, we are all literally fucked up in the head because of purity culture indoctrination. And we're, the majority of us, if we have more than $10, we are in therapy because it's just, but you are a generation above and you were still in purity culture. So like, what did purity culture look like for your generation? And then what is... What are you noticing that is the same and different in my generation now that you're on Instagram and talking with folks? Yeah, it, there are a lot of differences. And again, I'm not sure which are generational and which are Adventist-specific, uh. but um, ours was definitely a version of purity culture, but we weren't even in contact enough with the outside world. Like, I, Adventists aren't allowed to wear jewelry, so of course, like, the purity ring thing was not a, that was just mm. not even something we knew about. Um it was, uh, ours was all a personal, like it was your personal relationship with God. It was not um, a, a group thing that we could buy into with slogans or, or um, uh, rituals or anything. It was simply, you were not allowed to have sex until you were married. And we had all these classes where they would bring out these charts of, like, if you were dating someone, you know, in the first year you could progress to holding hands, and, you know, in the second year you could progress to kissing, but you better be married, basically, by year three because you're just overwhelmed with desire. So, mm-hmm. um, and they would just force this stuff down our throats. And, of course, women women were in charge of all sexuality. Um, it was our responsibility to control men's desire mm. um, with the way we dressed and the way we acted and, you know. So, uh, yeah, I I don't even know that much about the... the I guess your, your generation had a more formal... Uh, setup of purity culture, right? That you... Um, yeah, we did. So... I, my purity culture time was within the Southern Baptist Church. Um, I'm a, I'm a black woman and I was, my formative years of teenagerness was in the white evangelical church in the South. Um, and so I think for us, I remember us having like a ceremony in February when all of us would commit or recommit to abstinence or celibacy. Um, some of my friends or people that I grew up with, they would actually have like father daughter balls when like, and those started at like seven and eight years old and your dad would take you to the dance and you wear the white dress and the little tiara thing. And I didn't do that, uh, because yeah, it was, it was a lot. We weren't allowed to dance either. So we had no dances. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's fair. It's fair. But that was the only time you could dance. Like, cause otherwise... (laughs) Yeah, and then, you know, was at the father-daughter ball. Um, and then also, I did wear a True Love Waits ring. Um, I got that when I was 14. My dad did give it to me, um, and which I think is interesting because my, my dad has uh, made different choices in his marriages. But 
and then also we had books that you could read. So I was in the Joshua Harris, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And then there was Leslie Ludy with uh, God When God Writes Your Love Story. And then there was uh, Every Woman's Battle Student Edition with Workbook. And then there was the Healthy, like, oh my God. there was literature. We had books, we had songs, uh, conferences. Drew Lovewaite's conferences, uh, we had oh, t-shirts. I have, and I have to ask my mom to find it for me, but I remember, I was the only one that did this, but like, I felt so inclined by God one day to make um, an airbrush t-shirt in the mall. Um, I don't know if you remember those, but like, they would make them for you like real quick. And it's rainbow yeah, color. Awesome. Yes, exactly. Mine says, uh, I, my body belongs to Jesus, true love waits with a date on it. Cause I thought I've never worn it, but it exists and it is spectacular or hands off. Oh, it's wonderful. And so, <laughs> cause I was hardcore into it. And so that's what, um, we did. And then we also, uh, in my era, because I was in the South, um, Pregnancy care centers would come to do abstinence education in our schools and in our churches. Um, and we would usually have a nurse come in once a year to do um, STD education. Like, don't have sex, otherwise you're going to have blue waffle and, like, stuff coming right. out your penis. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. So that's yeah, where... Sex education, just like, here are the STDs and aren't they gruesome, and if you have sex, you're sure to get one. Sure to get one. 100%. Yes. Yeah, so... Yeah. It what we did. There was significant programming, um, and then when I did my research, also um, the Lifeway bookstores, which was with um, the Southern Baptist Convention, it's there. They made all the Sunday school material and all of this. They started the True Love Waits pledge system, I believe, in like ninety five or ninety nine. So it was a huge deal, and it actually went global. Um, Oh and the gosh. remnants of it are, okay. yeah, and the remnants of it, I was just talking with a friend um, at dinner uh, a couple days ago, um, she's from Uganda, and she uh, had heard of the purity culture-ness in Uganda, and it's directly connected to Lifeway, and yeah, and so part of the reason why HIV AIDS is so high in Uganda is because of the lack of sex education that came from Southern Baptist Convention. It's not, I don't have data on it, but once I do, I'm lighting the whole thing on fire because that's out where yes. it is. Mm -hmm. yes. So yeah, that's the part that I grew up in and I was in the heyday of it uh, with all right. the songs and the conferences. So yeah, but you were before this. So like, does that sound like, what does that sound like to you whenever you hear about what my generation was doing compared to what you, yours was personal though? Yeah, ours was all, we all kind of made our own way through it. And again, Adventists, because we weren't allowed to, to have any contact with anyone else. You know, we had this book called On Becoming a Woman. And, you know, it basically was just just purity, purity culture. And, um, you know, it was written by this medical doctor in the Adventist medical system. And it actually advocates female circumcision to prevent <sighs> excessive um, masturbation. You know, so it was super hardcore that way, but, um, but I mean, in a way I'm kind of wistful that, that you guys sort of had a community around it or it sounded mm -hmm. like, um, but, but still.
trauma is that then that your dads were involved? I mean, we could go, we could have a whole other session on the fucked upness there of the dads participating in the pure culture pressure shit like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like (laughs) Disney cartoons on steroids, right? It's just, um, or or Disney princesses on steroids. But, um, Mm. uh, so you know, I saw something the other day, and people were talking about the whole Josh Harris controversy, I guess, right now, which I don't, I didn't even know until two days ago who he was, yeah. and so I was scrambling, trying to figure out what was going on, and um, and somebody wrote, I guess this just exposes the fact that all of, there is so much trauma, like real trauma in this community, and people are, are still processing it, and it kind of gets lost in all of our joking, and our memes, and our, our uh, posts, mm-hmm. the, it's real trauma and and devastated by the way we were all choked on this um so yeah ours i think felt a little more uh lonely and like it was it was just us struggling i guess but i'm not i don't know uh how to weigh the magnitude of that versus what you guys went through it's all so brutal it's brutal in a different way and i don't you know, I don't feel as though it's appropriate to uh, weigh which trauma is worse. Like, because right, trauma yeah. is trauma. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, However, exactly. both of them, it's both of it, it they're both difficult. And yeah. they both require a lot of healing on individually yeah. and collectively, for sure. Exactly. Really? Yeah. I, I feel very, very fortunate in personally which is why I'm trying to put myself so much out in this space because I'm watching so many people who really truly believed it you know and were so invested in it and um and their struggles and mine is now decades behind me so I have a little more perspective but also I'm not sure I ever believed it I was a performative you know I was a perfectionist so if I was in that system I was going to be the best one there was Mm -hmm. but I don't think I ever really believed it you know I mean the, the, the fact that I just decided one day I'm, I'm ready to have sex and I just went out and found somebody to you know uh so I don't mm-hmm. think I struggle with a lot of the stuff that that people are who really believed it and that was their life and I just feel so much for people just knowing how traumatized I am and I didn't have that piece That's and true. um so I figure if I can tell my stories uh, for a lot of people who just aren't there yet, mm-hmm. um, maybe that'll help, you know? Yeah, for sure. But it's got to be worth something, you know, to just put it out there and say, here's what I did, you know? Yeah. Before we get into, like, the the meat of your story, I want to know about the beginning part. Like, you said that you didn't really believe it, and you kind of gave it the side eye, even as a young person. And, like... Did you, were you mouthy about, like, I think this is malarkey, but the rest of my friends thought it was okay, so I'm just going to be quiet? Or what What was that like? So, like, Melissa, from, like, five to puberty-ish time frame, before having sex and deciding, what what were you uh, like at that point? Yeah, no, I was, I was in there, hook, line, and sinker, totally mouthing it all. Just and my dad was... Um, 
he was a doctor, but he was also an ordained minister in the Adventist church and he preached a lot and he was very, you know, known. In, and so I loved that notoriety. I loved being associated with that in the church. And, um, I got baptized at 12 and I, I walked the walk. I talked the talk. If there was any church service or anything that I could participate in, I was there. But again, mm. it was always, um, performative. You know, mm-hmm. I don't ever remember having a struggle of conscience or a struggle um, or like serious conversations with God or or anything. It was all just simply fitting in because it was it was literally all I knew. I mean, we didn't have television. We weren't allowed to go to see movies. We weren't mm-hmm. allowed to listen to music, rock music or Christian music or anything. So all I knew was the Seventh-day Adventist world. And God damn it, I was going to be the best at it. You yes. know? And, um, but as far as like a relationship with God, mm, not so much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So where did you get your how to before you had sex the first time? Did you like look it up in the dictionary or like, cause it just seems real messy if you don't know what you're doing. I'm sure it was, uh, you know, not the most, um, graceful segue (laughs) into sexuality. Ah, Yes. That's adorable. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, my uh, the person that I had sex with the first time, he doesn't. He he, I did not tell him. Um, so because I didn't. Um, I my first person was of the African diaspora, and so I didn't want him thinking that since he took my virginity, where where he's gonna next like give my family some cows. So no. Nah. <laughs> This is there just no. This this you you don't you know my first name barely. That's enough. So we need to keep it just like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But, well, did you feel a lot of pressure though to like uh, be good at it or to act like you knew what you were doing or something? You know, it seems like before you have sex, that that seems to be a big. And I've had conversations offline with people who are ex Mormons and stuff who are struggling with that. Like they haven't had sex yet because they're just they're so freaked. 
And um, did you feel that? Yeah, for sure. Well, okay, so this is what had happened. So uh, I have a doctorate degree, and I earned it when I was 26. So, like, I was busy doing great things with my life, and I was um, – and I knew that I my first time that I wanted to have sex, it would have to be like when desire met opportunity. And so at either time when I was doing whatever, I either had a whole bunch of desire, no opportunity, because like I was in these small towns and I I was I was teaching at a university, so I couldn't like have sex with students even though I was young. So like I didn't know who a partner could be. Um, and then if I had opportunity, I had no desire. So like I, I told myself the next time that those two intersect, I was going to hopefully this person would arise. And so I was at the gym one day and I turned and I was like, well, today I have opportunity and desire. I'm going to go have sex with him. Yeah. And so <laughs> three days later, I lost my virginity. So like, there you go. yeah. Um, It, it works. It, it's fine. Good job. And so I think like regarding the performative part, like I really had no, I've always had a, a large amount of information on like what to do in sex because like I was always looking at stuff on it. Like I, I knew what sex was. Um, But as far as the performative part, I wanted it to be. Okay. So as far as like the performative part, I didn't, I knew that I wanted the time when I had sex the first time to be sacred and special because um, I didn't know what I was doing. So I was like, well, my aunt, my great aunt did say a long time ago that if I just like laid there, then something would happen. So I was like, let me do that because <laughs> I don't know. And even now, like I still have, I have no idea. Like I can do like, I have three talents. That's all. <laughs> don't ask me for stuff. But um, now that I have, am like, so at the very beginning, um, I was not very performative or feeling, but I've noticed now, and I'm talking about that with my therapist now, that I feel performative now. Because, like, because I think in, in, when you're in your 30s, people assume that you've been having sex for 15 or 20 years. I too. And so, like, I don't, I really, honestly, I, I have no idea. And so people ask you to do stuff. I'm like, oh, God, that's above my skill set. Like, I can do it. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. <laughs> this sounds hard. Yeah. And so I, I have I have areas to work on in that regard for sure. Um, but yeah, so that was the first but time. You know, it's true that like there is no bad sex. There's a good connection, you know. Exactly. So absolutely, and so it it's a uh, it was it was it was fascinating to me. And then at the end, I was like, well, that was that was fun. And then I was like. We had to do this again all the time. <laughs> so this is fun. <laughs> this is great. And so, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's awesome. I love it. Absolutely. Like everyone needs to get out there and do it more. All the time. Like, everybody, I don't care what, what season of life you're in. Like, just do, do it more. It's, that's the rule. Just go. Yep. More is great. More is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they had it right in the 60s. Make love, not war. Exactly. Live your best life. Yes. Yes. Okay, so um, we talked about basketball team guy. Um, Did you keep this information to yourself while you were young? Or did you, like, start to, like, what did you do after you had this secret? Really good question. So um, I 
immediately went to school the next day and um, told my friends. I was just so proud of myself. I'd had sex. And um, and they were all just a little bit, and they were all in long-term relationships with Seventh-day Adventist boys. And mm. they didn't, like, they just didn't say anything. And I remember being really, um, like, I, I couldn't tell what they thought. Well, then 15 years later, I found out that everybody was having sex <gasps> in high school. You know, all these couples had been having sex way before I had probably. <gasps> but it was just so closeted and it was such a sin that like nobody was talking about, it. not even best friends, you know, girls in high school, you'd think would have been talking about it. But no, but I just missed that filter. So I was like, <laughs> wow. But that was my senior year. That was like a couple months before I had, was graduating. I knew that already I was leaving the um, the Adventist fold there in um, in Michigan, and I was going to a school in Austria, a boarding school in Austria. I was taking a year between college, and my parents and I were having this big fight. They wanted me to go to an Adventist college because, you know, how else would I find a good husband? Mm. And I was like, fuck no. And um, so we compromised on me taking a year between high school and college and going to an Adventist uh, boarding school in Austria. Mm. And um, so I kind of knew I was out of the community anyway, so I didn't feel like I had to like keep secrets anymore. I was just like, bleh. Mm -hmm. Wow. So. <laughs> Excellent. And what happened to you in Austria? Because I feel like... When I was in Austria, folks were way more sexually liberated. So were they liberated when you were there also? Or? Totally. Again, it was a super Adventist-y. Um, you know, their their top line was very hardcore, very restrictive. Like at the girls' dorm, we got locked in the girls' dorm at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. But we, we would steal this ladder from the farmers next door and hide it in the... Um, I can never remember the English word for it, but the, the attic. Mm. And then we would stick the ladder out our windows at night and we'd go into town and dance all night and drink and then we'd come back. And so that was really my first taste of getting out in the world, other than the boy that I had found at the high school. But I didn't really spend much time with him. My parents didn't let me go. You know, I snuck out to have sex with him. So Austria uh, was my liberation. I started smoking. I started drinking. I started just having sex with everybody that I could. And um, I eventually got kicked out of that school and had to come home. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they said bye-bye. <laughs> it was a great six months while it lasted. <laughs> wow, you got kicked out of Austria's boarding school. Spectacular. <laughs> Good job. But they were, in general, they treated us much more like adults than I had ever been treated before, even though they were strict Adventists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so then you went home or like what happened after this? Then, then I went home, but the school, um, the, the Austrian school somehow refunded the portion of my, and I've never told anybody this, so I'm assuming my parents won't care at this point, but, um, they refunded the portion of my tuition that would have been paid if I had not gotten kicked out of school for the next four months or something. They gave it to me instead of to my parents. Oh no. So. I know. So I had these couple thousand dollars. It wasn't that much, but to a kid, of course, that was huge. And so it was like, funny. whatever it was, 1988 or 89. And um, 
so I kind of used that money over my parents' head to be like, well, I can travel now and do what I want. I went to California for a while, which was where all my relatives were, and I bounced around among the non-Adventist ones that I could find, and um, and I just waged this war with my parents. I'd gotten into Barnard College, um, and... My mom was adamant, no, she cannot go out of the Adventist system. But my dad is enough of a snob, honestly, that he was attracted to the Seven Sisters um, Ivy League thing around Barnard. And um, so eventually they, they let me go. So I went to Barnard, and that's where I went to college. Ooh. And from then on, not a single Adventist anything ever. <laughs> really? Excellent. So... Um, is this the same time when, so you had your sexual liberation or your moment and also leaving yeah. the church at the exact same time, or did one happen before exactly. the other? Well, I'm sorry, what, that just cut out? Or did, like, one thing happen, so your liberate, sexual liberation and then your leaving the church, was that at exact the same time or was one before the other? So we are after Austria... After California, hanging out with non-Adventist family people. Okay, that's where we left off. Yeah, yeah. And just whether I left, uh, like, what was it sex and leaving the church at the same time or yeah. a different time? I think is where we ended. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think they, it was absolutely the same moment because I think uh, because I didn't possibly have that um, very personal connection with God or the theology that a lot of people do um, mine was all about what Adventists wouldn't let us do mm -hmm. and the and it, primarily it was the sex I mean it's always been the forbidden you could tell in high school and I'll, I'll post another memoir snippet here shortly about like you could literally smell the fear on the adults when they would talk about sex in mm -hmm. high school they just were so afraid that we might find out what it was so of course I was like hey, well gotta go in that direction <laughs> um, but uh, mm -hmm. so it just seemed to be their big overriding fear for us so um, I think to me the two were synonymous yeah just going out and finding my sexual freedom, and then it obviously meant no church. Wow. And I guess for me it was pretty simple. Yeah, absolutely. Not, not easy, but simple, right? Not easy, but simple. Absolutely. Excellent. So what was Melissa like as an adult, like 20s now, I think is where we're at. And what... Yeah. What were you learning about your body, about sexuality? How did it change? And how did you change? Like, yes. You know, um, in my very early 20s, um, I was just into having as much sex as possible. You know, I just, like, seducing men, finding men and seducing them was just... The, it was a power high, I think, probably. Mm. Um, and it was just fun. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, but then by, uh, right after I graduated from college, um, I ended up in a really serious relationship with a guy that I eventually became my first husband, um, who was super controlling. And, um, and I had kind of learned along the way that, um, I needed sex to make me feel bad 
somehow. Like I had mm. just gravitated toward, um, I wouldn't say degrading sex, but, um, but disturbing or, um, unsettling mm-hmm. sex it wasn't necessarily, uh, gratifying. Like it wasn't necessarily fantastically orgasmic sex, but somehow in me, I needed it to be a bit, uh, destructive or something. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I struggled with that through that whole marriage and, um, uh, only recently have, and that's why I've started the memoir again, is because I've only recently realized that, uh, issue, um, stems directly from the church. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you read that memoir snippet that I posted, but like I went, we went to a marriage therapist and the therapist was like asking me all these questions about what I thought about sex. And I was like, I don't, I've never really thought about sex. I just like it. Mm-hmm. And, um, then I finally was like, well, I, I need it. I just keep looking for something to make me feel in sex just to get an emotional, because I never had an emotional, uh, like like you were talking about, um, that you wanted it to be uh, special. And um, uh, what was the word that you used? Because it was such a good word. I like sacred. It was special and sacred. Say, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I never had that. To me, it was just fun and wild and... Um, and so I kind of told her all that and just basically I was always looking for something to push my buttons, get underneath the kind of, uh, shell or something and make me feel. And mm-hmm. then I realized it was to make me feel bad wow. about it. And of course that of course goes right back to the church. Right. Yeah, but it took sure. me years and years and years to figure out that I was acting out sexually what I had been imprinted with mentally for the first 18 years of my life. Wow, that's fascinating. So when can you explain a little bit more of like how so I can see it in my head that like sex you need to feel bad, but like can you give it an example of like what you like did you want to feel pain or did you want to feel degraded or like are we doing whips and chains? Are we doing like emotional abuse? Are we doing runaway like what is that gets tricky, right? Because I thought it was all a physical thing. It was mostly yeah, needing to feel pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it just, yeah, needing to feel sh- just sharp, ugly physical sensations from mm-hmm. it. Um, and, but, but now, of course, you know, again, in later, later life, I've realized it also very much exposed me to emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. As well, because uh, not to say, oh, these poor men that you that participate in this, but there's an there they have to have an emotional investment in in that tango that you're doing as well, and a lot of them they're pretty sadistic then, you know, and it's not just physical, it's mental, and mm-hmm. um, of course, and um, so that's taken a lot of untangling for me. Um, and I'm not sure I'm, you know, I've, I feel like I've kind of figured it all out, but uh, it will probably be what I work on for the rest of my life, probably. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's my lasting legacy of the imprinted, you know, sex is bad that we were raised with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we all struggle with it in our own life. It is so true. It is so true. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I'm curious at this point and also in whenever you get into the future part of you um, or the later part after your 20s, like, so when you say that the sex is bad, that was the indoctrination piece. And then it manifested in this kind of way. How did you work through that being a non-religious person or change your identity so that not necessarily so that sex is good, but maybe sex is not so bad? Um, Since you can't just go to God per se, where did you go to get get it untwisted in your head at this point? Well, I think probably that's why it's taken literally decades is because mm-hmm. I didn't have a, a, anywhere to go necessarily for okay. it. I, you know, I tried therapy and I should have, you know, done more therapy. Um, but uh, I ended up getting out, you know, the, the first marriage was so controlling and um, that I ended up, uh, I, I thought I never wanted to have children, and then I, I slowly realized that the reason I didn't want to have children was because I was already just uh, owned by this other person, and, and children just felt like an extension of that, like, then I'll be owned by these other little people that are attached to this person, mm-hmm. and um, when I kind of figured that piece out, I fell in love with someone else who was already a father and who seemed like just the most magical father ever. And, and a normal, stable person, you know, and mm-hmm. so I left that first marriage and I ended up having children and getting married to my second husband. And, um, and that was kind of where I had, I, I feel like that was where I had a bit of a, um, an island of normalcy in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we had kids and I learned that you could, you know, have love in sex and you could be normal and uh, and that was um that was when I started writing the memoir I started to put all the pieces together then you know and um and figuring out okay so and at first I thought oh this whole um sexual piece is about control you know the church was controlling and and uh, you know I need to be controlled in sex but I think it's it's it has to do with, like, narcissism and, you know, like, when you think about the Old Testament God, he's a fucking narcissist, you know? I mean, the story mm. of Job or the story of Abraham, mm. he's awful, right? Mm. Prove how much you love me. I'm going to kill your children. Oh, you still love me? Prove how much. I'm going to give you boils, you know? Mm. I mean, fuck you, right? Mm. But it just... So we didn't ever learn any boundaries. We didn't learn anything because we weren't... We were just supposed to chase after this ever-changing, needy person who could give and withdraw love. You know, that was yeah. our, that was God. And um, so I think it, it really, so it was more than control. It was even that bigger, like, the narcissist piece that I'm still kind of working through, like how, how um, that, it really made me vulnerable to people like that. Absolutely. For sure. Um I've gathered that a lot from other friends that I've talked with is like whenever you have the idea of a judgmental narcissistic deity who for some folks is a very violent God and then connecting that to a non-loving sexual relationship with yourself and with others, partners or whatever, they're directly connected to each other. Um, And folks act out in in their sexuality um, because of that. And they, 
work through or they are proving something or having some need to rectify pain in their life and they do that through fucking and having sex and so yeah yeah that is exactly so typical yeah really healthy I mean it has certainly helped me work through a lot of stuff I don't know how else I could have done it obviously because that's the way I didn't do it but um, Mm -hmm. I know there are others who who that they're having similar experiences so so many of us for sure Mm -hmm. yeah yeah wow fascinating okay so now we're in our your 20s um you went through an emotion emotionally bizarre first marriage now you're in a loving marriage um i'm curious about like okay so you had your wild sex times and now you're in like a norm what what normal sex life with a loving person were you bored or was this affirming to you or like was this great or were you tired of the wild sex and now you're like great i'm here and it's like what was that transition like for you because this is the reason why i want to ask you because i'm watching this tv show it's called sex life and she's exactly where you are right now and i just finished season one and i need to know through you what season two is going to be about (laughs) i was wrecked to give you the answer that you're hoping for or not but um i think um that it was a real breather for me and a real chance to like reflect and be uh you know, supported and to feel normal, like to explore normal. Mm-hmm. Like, um, he was, he came from this totally normal, vaguely Southern Baptist family, but just, vague, you know, like they went to church on Easter type of thing, like yeah. not, and, um, but otherwise they were just salt of the average American people, um, with no weirdos, you know, in their mm-hmm. history, like I had, you know, not yes. like freaky stuff. And, um, so I think it was a, a total breather psychologically, but also, yeah, sexually, just learning that you could have a loving, supportive thing. And I think it was reassuring, but I don't think, and, you know, I hesitate to talk about him because he still is, you know, the father of my children and whatever, and he is not asking me to tell his story. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think eventually um, I hadn't worked through what I needed to work through, so I ended mm-hmm. up leaving that marriage for someone else who was much wilder and freakier, and I got all back into the wild and freaky, mm-hmm. because um, I had not, I just hadn't finished that, you know, I hadn't gotten through that piece, I guess, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so I, I hesitate to call it, was I bored? Um, I think more, I just still needed whatever psychological, physical thing there that I hadn't processed yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. So. That's exactly what my TV show is doing. She went back <laughs> into the crate. So you had the answer. You did. That's exactly what she's doing. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Yeah. I was talking, I've talked with a, a few people who are older than me and folks who have been sex, more sexually active. Well, that's not hard to do than me. Um, and um, a lot of folks, like, um, I was watching another TV show called Insecure, and that's when I got the idea of, of a whole phase. It comes from my TV show, but I changed the spelling of it because I want it to be fancy in French. And so, um, like, one of the things that, 
I've gathered is that everybody has a hoe phase, whether it's when before you're married, during your marriage, after divorce, or in the second, whatever it is, it it will come out at some time. Um, and it needs to. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And so yours wasn't done yet. And so you went back into it. bless them oh jesus yes so it's amazing to me so now that you're in this season of your life like how are you defining your sexual voice your agency like what is that looking like now that you're not 34 like me and then this i don't even know i is it it's not the i I don't know what season that's called um well, yeah, yeah, post well, kids. I'm, I'm middle aged, basically, but I don't know. There's got to be a, a a prettier term for it. Um, but it's it's a it's a, a really. I didn't believe uh, older women when I was younger when they said this is a really great phase to be in, and um, and it is. It's really something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you. You start to get, no matter if it's children or career or whatever, you're on the other side of having to achieve that and devote all your time to it, probably. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, physically, of course, everything hurts a little bit. You have to wear reading glasses. You know, you're starting to see wrinkles and sags. But but physically, you're also so much more comfortable with yourself. Mm. And, And you really just, I mean, you just don't give a shit. Uh, you know, you really do reach that point where I don't care what people think, and mm-hmm. um, I do not have to be like everyone else. And so that frees you up everywhere. You know, sexually, socially, um, just personally, just walking around your house, you just you feel so much more comfortable in your own skin. And uh, you know, it's a it's a fun phase. Ooh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So. As people are transitioning from um, being 
told what to do about their their bodies, their sexuality, their libido, all of the things. Um, how what um, questions would you offer someone to ask themselves in order to free them from these chains and from these expectations so that they can become what's inside them? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, that's a really good question. I wish I had thought of that before so I could have some really great pearls of wisdom because that is that is really what, you know, the heart of it is... Um, what do they need to ask themselves? Um, hmm. Well, I guess there's always the classic, you know, picture yourself 10 years down the road. Do you wish you'd done this or that? You know, do you mm. wish you'd stayed, you know, in the purity thing or do you wish you'd gone out? Um, I do really believe in, you know, projecting and picturing what it could look like um, for you. But I think for a lot of people that are still deep in it, they don't, they have no picture. They can't even. Um, so what would you ask? Um, oh, God, I don't know. I'll be out there. What do you think? <laughs> you know, I, um, I was talking with a friend of mine. I've talked with a couple friends of mine who are uh, very in it to win it. Um, now that I'm 34 and they're closer to 40, um, and they married their college lover, college person, didn't have sex until they got married, one partner for yeah. life, or I sinned once, but now I'm, 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 I'm married to the love of my life, and I'm, I'm fully happy. I really am, and I'm going to pray for you because you wilding out. And I was like, well, a little. <laughs> so, like, but I would, the idea of... Um, who is choosing for you to do X, Y, or not do X, Y with your body is something that's yeah. super powerful for me that I'm working on with my therapist and then also when I talk with folks. And for people that are in purity culture, it is rarely, I'm doing this for me. Um, and I've probably only spoken to like maybe one person who was like, I don't have sex because this is my choice. Like, I don't want this. And I was like, great. But so many yeah. of them are like, God God wants me to do this. Uh, the church said. And I'm like, but you, though. And what about yeah. you? And they're like, but that's not, like, we don't we don't think this way. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that for sure. I mean, if people have that capacity to question the whole structure of it, then for sure that's where they need to go is like who's profiting from basically I mean and I don't mean necessarily like monetarily but who is benefiting mm -hmm. from my purity it's the church it's the you know patriarchal system it's uh, you know for sure patriarchy basically <laughs> yeah. but you know I honestly do think that there is there is profit also yeah so yeah, much well, Rue, yeah, because yeah, of book deals and rings, jewelry, all conferences, so many right. things. Like there's there's profit in not being a hoe for sure. For oh my sure. Gosh. Well, I mean, I was just kind of catching up to speed on that on that whole Josh. Is it Josh Joshua Harris? Joshua oh, Harris. Is that awful senator guy who's <laughs> Josh Harris? Um, uh, uh, yeah, that, that, I mean, I guess he was making a huge profit off of purity culture. Now he's making a huge profit off of going to construction. Or something. 
Um, and I was like, oh my goodness, wow, okay. Yeah, it's again, wild. You know, cishet white males profiting off of, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Just profiting in a different way. I'm still like within the debacle because I've I've read a couple pieces and I'm not on Twitter because Twitter and China aren't friends. But like, I've I've seen remnants the remnants that have gotten onto Instagram. Like I've seen it and I am still like when it comes to this. Like I still want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like he is he is trying, but he is also trying in a very cis white head head of role. male way you need to try just a little bit harder yeah Yeah. so i i would love for there to be like a joshua harris dating reparations foundation and he like makes minimum wage and gives all his money away that's when i'd be like you know what okay you're good now yeah but anything more than that i can't like (laughs) i can't support Yeah, or pay my therapy bill because isn't she's my therapist is expensive, and so no kidding. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and just the fact, I mean, to me, and again, I'm way outside the whole controversy, but just looking at it from the outside of like just the entitlement again of the mm-hmm. white male thing of just stepping in and being the authority. Yeah, for oh, sure. Well, thanks, but there are a lot of other people here who've really been struggling with this, mm-hmm. and now you just switch sides and you're the authority again. And again. It's like, yeah. You know, mm, yeah, yeah. time for you to let other voices, more diverse voices, mm. actually take charge. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Diversity. Let's, let's try this idea for sure. For sure. <laughs> wow. So, okay, I have another question. Um, so with your, um, what does your sexual sexuality look like now? So you said that, you are in a partnered relationship, but then you all you both like to play separately and, and uh, not separately. Um, what is it looking like for you now? Um, and what choices are you making consciously um, right now? Yeah. You know, um, it's, a, it's an ever-evolving thing, which is great. Um, I've always been, uh, I would say, bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, but never had any serious relationships with women. Uh, in the beginning, that was because it was just so not allowed in the whole church culture, and I carried that over even into my early 20s for whatever reason. Um, but uh, my current partner is completely fine with me exploring that, so that's been fun. I've explored mm-hmm. that uh, with him and uh, alone, and um, and. He kind of came to the relationship saying, I have never been monogamous and I never will be. And yeah. so I, um, I kind of knew that. He tried to pretend not, but all of his cues were saying that anyway. So it was like his mouth said, oh, you know, but everything said, no, he'll never be. And, and, and now he really admits it, you know, so, um, mm. So it's a it's a it's a it's a negotiation, which again keeps it um, not dull, and um, and and honestly, as we because he's ten years older than I am, and I'm fifty two, you know, he's eleven years older than I am, and um, so we had just the wildest, wildest first five or eight years together that were just 
nutty, and um, and now we've kind of settled into like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna grow old together, and we're old already. And what does that look like? You know, and so we're kind of we laugh a lot about how the wild stuff we did when we first met just seems like a lot of work right now. <laughs> it seems like way too much work, honestly. Yeah, and, that's um, so funny. So you know, you grow, you um, you negotiate, and you you accept, you know, I mean, are we slowing down? Probably. Do, do I want to be the 60 year old lady in the miniskirt dancing on the table drunk? You know, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I think I'm going to accept slowing down and, yeah. you know, uh, so we'll see. I, I'm kind of interested to see where it goes from here. Yeah. I love how, um, you're giving your space yourself. I like how, you're giving yourself space to explore, and you have used the word explore. And I think that um, in my experience in purity culture, there was no exploring. Like, there was a strict fence of, like, this is this is what you do. These are the positions. Like, we, I wasn't into um, – there were a couple books that I read. Uh, they were more on the Church of God in Christ side, like the Pentecostal, apostolic, um, that side. And there was there have been there have been a couple books that from them, and they were like, it's missionary position. That's all. So you can have sex, however, mission. And they were like, because the Bible says something about you need to see your sex partner in the eye. And the intimacy, it can't come from the back and you can't go down. Like, there's no oral sex because you have to, like, eye contact. Oh is, is that really in the Bible somewhere? And I missed of it? course I it is. Of course it says missionary only. It's in the Bible. Yes. I must have blocked that out at 18. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in there. I don't, I mean, I read the Bible five times. I, I didn't see it, but they, they said that it was in there. So you got to believe it because it's in a book and they published it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was spectacular. And so, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was wild. And so like the idea of exploring and allowing yourself to do that, I think makes like sex like more spicy and you can also say I like this or I didn't like this and I want to try or I don't want to try and like what I'm working on with my therapist is like she's like go go try and see if you like it and tell me next week what what did you think and I'll be like okay I like that but uh this part I thought was stupid so I never want to do that again but this part was cool and yeah and so um and feeling what my body feels like and also what my heart and my soul feel like those are all questions and things that I was not allowed to ask within purity culture because we had a strict fence. And so, yes. yeah. So when you are exploring your sexuality, do, is it, I want to ask about exploring and feeling of freedom in order to do that. So can you talk about what that looks like and feels like for you? Um, hmm. You know, it's funny. I always, I think I take my cues off of the other person in terms of if it feels like they want to do it, if they're pushing something selfishly, which just sounds so elementary, but uh, but then immediately I may not find it very appealing. Mm-hmm. You know, and if if, it were, if I were in a different relationship with someone else and it was it was a kind of mutual thing, then it would suddenly be appealing, right? But mm-hmm. um. 
you know, kind of the classic thing is like dudes who just want you to give them a blowjob or something and they're mm-hmm. not interested in anything else. They just want to get off. And it's kind of like, eh. Whereas if you're with somebody else and it's all super exciting, that is just like the most fun thing ever. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, but giving myself permission to explore, you know, this is going to sound perhaps, I don't know, but um, for me, often uh, a no emotional attachment has been uh, beneficial. Mm. Finding, you know, just either, you know, one night stand or a professional or whatever just to explore um, makes you feel a lot more free, at least mm-hmm. for me. It had, it did, um, because, again, there's really no judgment there. There's no lasting consequences if somebody feels awful about it later or um, you don't have to talk about it you know so I'm you know that just goes back to our hoe phase thing where I think that's so important for people like go explore go find out uh without high emotional stakes Mm -hmm. because that colors everything that you do for sure um and you just never know what you're going to really enjoy or hate um and god forbid you're locked into a relationship when that's all you, you know, all you're going to do, like when you were saying just missionary position and I was thinking, so first of all, you can only have one partner and then you mm-hmm. can only have one position. Like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, shoot me now. Yeah. And look each other yeah. in the eye. That part. You forgot to mention. <laughs> look at them in the eye. Oh my God. Yeah. Cause that's yes. the most intimate cause God requires like he, he wants you to be the most intimate. So eye to eye contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's spectacular. Whoa, yes. I remember I remember um right before I moved to China, there was a guy, his name was African number three. Um none of the other ones have a number attached, just African number three. And he said, uh, I was very virginal at the moment, but I was like uh I like I could see us being together, but we had some philo- serious philosophical uh disagreement when it comes to race even though we were both black like we thought vastly different things and I was like I can't I don't want to teach my kids I, I couldn't I couldn't I, I, I just can't think in that kind of way anyway so um I was like yeah we can get married but also I kind of want to go to China also and so he was actually my first kiss as an adult was African oh. number three and he told me he was like you're you're shaking and I was like Oh, tell him I said hi. So he said, you, you're shaking. Like, I was like, this is, oh, it, it was really challenging. And so the idea of um, choice in what I wanted to do with my body, he was like, what What are you wanting? And um, And I told him, I was like, I can't be what you think that I am because I'm not ready for this life to be a wife. And um, I kind of just want to play and for some in some way I've all I've been able to separate sex from emotion which is great yeah. and also requires boundary setting um yes yes because it's not just being out there all the time like but also learning how to balance like me not having emotions is this my way of protecting myself from 
being emotionally connected because that's what I truly want or am I just out here because I can't I don't know and so yeah yeah so I think it's cool that you mentioned the being able to explore with uh without that without emotional connection is healthy along with being able to explore with emotional connection and the sex is yeah different yeah yeah yeah, I think, yeah, I think ideally people can do both, um, yeah. but I do think especially for people coming out of purity culture, it's a, if they can get there to that disconnect, it's really important. And, and back to your question of, um, you know, what questions would I tell people to ask themselves, you know, on just a purely biological um, level, uh why would your body have all of these sensations and abilities if, I mean, just if you aren't supposed to use them? I mean, if you're supposed to have sex in one very narrow, very singular way, um, I mean, all of your other bodily appetites, like food, why in the hell would you eat oatmeal every day for the rest of your life? You know, that's not healthy, Mm -hmm. and it's not fun, and it doesn't um, use the gifts of your body so I mean uh, and a lot of people I know they it comes from your body is God's and blah 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 so I'm not sure where to how to help people but seriously our human bodies are, are amazing and versatile and so mm. it would be a shame to leave this earth without trying as much as you can for sure like and I yeah. remember praying to Jesus or whomever is in the sky at the time like I was like, please don't let me die before I lose my virginity. Like, and for me to yeah. have the to need to pray that, I think is tragic. Like, it's tragic. It's tragic. And um, yeah, so I'm, I feel honored and privileged that I can have a whole face that looks the way that it is right now. Um, and yeah. I grieve for those folks who aren't there yet. Um, yes. But also, that's their life. They can do whatever they want with their bodies. It's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and also, and uh, you know, just thinking when you said you feel honored and privileged to be able to do this, and, and then you think about all the cultures around the world where women are are not allowed to have a hoe phase, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, and how tragic that is. And we really are lucky to be able to explore our bodies. So, I mean, there's almost a, a mandate there. <laughs> do it. For sure, because you can, because you can, yes, absolutely, um, let me think, oh, so let's talk about your book, like, why did you call it the way that it is, what is it, what are you, what are you trying to do with it, so exciting, yes, I love it already, yes, Mm. and um, 
and even though I've been so far removed from the church, that really rocked me. I mean, it just rocked me. And I actually um, figured out who one of the victims was of one of my family members, and I reached out to her, and she started talking to me, and that was so intense. And, I mean, she was so gracious, and I still talk to her to this day. Um, but she told me more details than I ever wanted. And, um, and she also told me a lot about the Adventist church in, in the sixties and seventies also. So it was just a really great. And so I started writing just, just to kind of get that all grouped in my mind. And, um, uh, there was complete denial in the church. Um, there was complete denial in my family. And mm. so it was just me out there going, somebody needs to take accountability for this. This is awful. Um, and so I wrote it because I couldn't get any answers. And um, so I started with that kind of family history, and then it just evolved into, like, church history and my history. And um, so I, I ended up pitching it. I took a... Um, I pitched it to all these major um, agents, and I got this fantastic man at William Morris, who, um, his name was Mel Berger, and he was just the greatest agent ever, and he was like, I love your writing, and I'll pitch anything you ever write, Um, and so we tossed it around to all the major publishing houses, and they all were very, very flattering, very encouraging about the writing, they liked the writing, but they just, they all said either the material's too shocking, Mm. or it's a misery memoir and we're not misery memoirs don't sell right now and of course I thought it was a black comedy Mm. I didn't see misery there I thought it's twisted as fuck and so funny in a a black sort of way and so I was really shocked with that Um, but now in hindsight I'm really glad it didn't sell because at that stage I feel like the story didn't have an arc to it. Like I had gone through all this trauma and I had witnessed and I pulled out all the trauma in my extended family and the church. And then I kind of ended on a flat note, like, okay, and now I'm sort of happy behind the white picket fence in a kind of flat relationship with kids, you know, talking to that one woman and I um and I've come to this place where I just viciously want to call the church out like I just um my my current partner is Native American and so we've been watching the residential school yes trauma of all of the children and Adventists ran those residential schools also in fact they still have some that they run and so I've started like fighting with those people, uh, you know, writing to the school and saying, what are you doing? I've found people who were abused in those systems. And so I really, really feel this calling to, um, feeling a calling is just the wrong wording, right, for those of us with religious trauma. But, um, <laughs> but I really feel the need to out the Adventist church because they're huge. They've got 21,000 members worldwide. They're bigger than the Mormon church, but nobody's heard of them. And they are so secretive and they are so evil. Mm. And um, so I really want to repitch the memoir when I'm ready. Um, my, unfortunately, Mel Berger retired and now I don't even believe he's alive anymore. So I'm going to have to find a new agent and um, uh, redo the whole process, but I'm going to. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I'm doing my Instagram. I have 
the glory hole name on all the social media platforms, but right now all I'm posting on is Instagram. But, um, and oh, and just the name, you know, so, uh, <laughs> when I, when I started it 15 years ago, I really wanted to name it that I just thought it was hilarious mm-hmm. and very poignant, you know, um, and, uh, and my writing teacher at the time and lots of people said, oh no, no, that's just way too, that's way too out there and way mm-hmm. too inflammatory. And recently, I mean, the world has changed. Mm-hmm. And recently, all I have gotten is just like, oh, my God, people reach out to me and haven't even looked at the page. And they're just like, what is that title? I love it. Uh, you know, and, um, uh, just it's fun. It, it is. It, it fits. Mm-hmm. I, I like it. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> you need to stick with it for sure. For sure. Oh, so. When you say the word evil for the SDA church, Seventh-day Adventist, yes. like what does that mean and what does that look like? Like you, you mentioned the sexuality piece. You mentioned the residential. What else do non-SDA people need to know about the SDAs for you to decide evil? Because that's, yeah. that's a strong word. So what it is that? Is. Yeah, it's a strong word. And, and there are, of course, I know many lovely Adventists who are really just truly good people. So of course it's not everyone, but it is, I believe their, their system, uh, their, you know, church that is so awful. There's, there's the sexual, sexual repression, um, piece. There's the, uh, anti-feminism and basically anti-women piece. Um, Mm -hmm. there's the residential schools and, um, that ties into their larger piece, which I have, you know, the colonial missionary piece, which is just, that's how they've grown their, their, um, worldwide membership in the, uh, in the United States, there's really not that many Adventists, Mm. but they are such vicious missionaries and they, um, they're very, um, we often, they often get confused with, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses or something, Yeah. but it's, um, but the Adventists are extremely into medical care. They have, they, they run world-respected medical schools they're they're very into medical care not like the jw's and um uh and they use that just they go around the world to incredibly um destitute spots and we'll build you a clinic and we'll give you health care if you'll become adventist oh, um, yeah that's ethical my my father as a as a doctor slash preacher did that all over the world you know mm-hmm. um he taught uh, stop smoking clinics. He taught um, heart disease clinics, all that stuff. And it was all, you know, you come, let us preach at you and you join the Adventist church and we'll give you health care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what the fuck, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, what are you supposed to do if you're dying and you have no hospital within 700 miles of you? Of course, you're going to go to the Adventists, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get saved and, for medical care. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Yep. And so to me, that is one of the most egregious pieces. And that's also with the residential schools that ties in, you know, they're saving mm-hmm. these poor Native American children from the awful res- res- reservation system and blah, blah, blah. And um, mm. so uh, I, there is just so much damage there, so much uh, coercion and... Um, and I, I, I do think it's evil. You know, it's calculated. It deprives people of their culture and, their, and to an extent, their humanity and their, you know, mm-hmm. like every other missionary. Sect, you know, 
like every other one. And since I grew up in around evangelicals, um, I personally never went on a missionary trip because I was kind of giving them the side eye. But um, I'm very vocal right now on racial inequality just because America. But um, I have traveled quite a bit and I have yet to see a place that has inherently is inherently better because of Christianity and what was taught to them. I've yet to see it. Um, and it is devastating to me. And I, I've had so many conversations with folks all around the world who are like, yeah, uh, the missionaries came, they gave us a school. And then now, you know, just with talking with them, um, I finally was able to talk to one and I was like in tears at the dinner and she was basically, um, I don't even know the word, but I've heard these stories, but I finally talked to someone and she, uh, went to her pastor for some, because life got hard and she needed some help and, uh, to pray and to get God's connection or something like this. And she, was given three options from the local pastor. The first option was to fast for three months. The second option was to give money to the church. The third option was to have sex with the pastor because his penis was holy. Yeah, he had a holy, holy penis. And that would be fixed immediately. And I was like, I was, I, I, I can't even, like, I was, I was floored. I don't even have the 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 space to process yeah. how atrocious that is and yeah. yeah and he is like i know that he's not the only one um and somebody somewhere said told him that that was a good idea and come to find out this pastor and others are hiv positive so like wow like what in the world and so um, I've heard those stories and I finally was connected to a couple folks with that know of this directly and not saying that that is all of Christianity, but that is happening and they are not being held accountable. Makes the whole system bad. Like burn They're the whole system down. They're yeah. not. Mm-mm. No. And these stories need to come out because folks from the States are going to these places to save everyone. But right. what is really... I, I just, it's it's devastating. So, um, yeah. yeah, for sure. <sighs> so I want to call it out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, um, as you are journeying through this and you're sharing on Instagram, like, what are folks? What what are you learning from other people who are reading your ex- excerpts? Like, what conversations are you having? Like, how is this? Yeah. Yeah. That's been very eye-opening for me because I just started putting it out there and I didn't know what I was going to get. I actually assumed I was going to get a lot of kickback from Adventists. Mm. And I haven't heard a single thing from any Adventists. I've, I've made connections with about a dozen um, ex-Adventists. Mm. Um, but mostly I'm hearing from people all over the fundamental and ex-evangelical um, scale. And... Um, Mostly kind of people almost looking for, well, I'd say primarily it's people saying, oh my God, we're all the same, you Mm -hmm. know, no matter what. It's just like we had so much um, in common in the way that we were all raised in these different churches and we all thought we were special. Mm. They all told us that we were the only church and not, you know, the word of 
the, was the only true word. Mm. And it was identical, pretty much, yep. across the board. And so that, to me, is hilarious. But it's also very affirming. And I think it's affirming for a lot of people that we're all kind of banding together and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, mm-hmm. how ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm also hearing, uh, you know, very very tragic you know like you were saying like stuff I can't even quite process of Mm -hmm. um uh, people dming me and um like the the one uh guy who is xjw and he just cannot function sexually because he just he can't do it he you know um and that just breaks my heart you know Mm -hmm. and um and then ex-Adventists who we share, you know, because of course it's a small community, and so we sh- we all know each other basically through various connections, and so yeah. people call, you know, telling me someone else's story that they knew, and um, and people telling me their own stories of abuse, mostly you know just like like you were talking about the pastor, you know, like oh well you can blow me or you know. Um, in church schools and, and like the residential schools, I've talked to several, you know. They were six and seven years old, and they were abused, you know, and they were in boarding school. They couldn't do anything. And um, so I never know day to day what I'm going to have in my inbox. (laughs) And if I can help, you know, I don't – I feel kind of uniquely positioned because as uh, I was not personally molested or abused, you know, in a Mm. physical sense – so I can take all, I can absorb all these stories and try to fight, you know, and try to expose the church, but it doesn't expose me personally. So I, I feel this, this responsibility to try to get justice for people who just can't, you know, they can't come out mm-hmm. personally. For sure. So I'm just trying to tell my own story. There are a lot of people out there discussing all the theological aspects of it, and I'm learning so much from them, but that's not what I think I bring to the table. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that through just my continuing to tell my story and listening to other people's story and going after the church, um, I hope I can make a difference. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. One of my favorite things is, like, when people are, like, see – how their narrative, their story fits an injustice in the world and it like makes this perfect fit. And so it, I'm so glad that you are brave enough and willing to put yourself out there and say, this is not okay. So we're, we're, I'm going to do what I can to fix it rather than just being quiet about it. Like that's, that's admirable for sure. Yes. Well, thank you. Of course it's crazy, but it's okay. Like, you have to be just a little bit insane. Like, you know, like, whenever I left for to leave abroad, like, it was the craziest shit I've ever done in my life. But also, like, why not? And you ha- you have to be just a little bit crazy in order to um, to do these big things, to make these big moves, to put yourself out there. And I feel like if people, just like you were talking about with oatmeal, like, if we all stayed oatmeal, that's sad. Yeah. We need... It yeah. is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and it, it's again something that comes, I think, with age. One of those nice things that comes with age. Everybody focuses on the negative, but you know, I feel like I can put myself out there um, because, like I was saying earlier, you just don't give a shit really anymore. Mm-hmm. But I also don't have to please anybody. Like a lot of these kids that I see going through the deconstruction process are still walking this tightrope of their parents 
and their mm-hmm. husband and their this and their that mm-hmm. and that's very real and they have to work in those you know I can't just say like well you should just ignore that that would be ignorant and very hurtful you know so but I because I'm kind of this outlier at this point mm-hmm. I can I can take the bull by the horns and say you know what this fucking sucks and it sucks for everybody and um, I don't have to please people you know my parents are still alive but I don't have to please them and um, I don't you know uh, I don't have to please anybody yeah so I go around and rattle cages (laughs) I love it absolutely so um, my last things are um, let's see how would you describe being a hoe so like I'll tell you what mine is and then I want to know like what you think so I forget all the words but one one of my ideas that I'm working on as as a hoe and being in my hoe phase is consent unapologetic being free kind to yourself and others um creative um and yes so how do you describe being a hoe or a hoe phase mutual or you know along those lines whatever word people are comfortable with um but definitely it needs to be mutual i would say openness Hmm. um openness with the first primarily with yourself like you know am i doing this because of what exactly am i truly open to this experience or not um but trying also to be a little more open than your fear gives you, you know, trying yeah. to push the envelope just a little. Mm. I would say pushing the envelope for sure. Um, when you feel comfortable, uh, getting outside that comfort zone or outside what you think it should look like, you know, mm-hmm. um, also, uh, just enjoyment, just you know, um, it should be a, you know, sometimes sex is messy or it's goofy or it's like, you know, embarrassing or it's whatever. And just finding the fun in it instead of getting hung up in how it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think really being open to just what it is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite sex stories that you just are dying to tell people and or <laughs> advice that you want to give someone? Yes. Um, well, OK, so here's a, here's a good sex story. And I really hope my ex-husband and my children are not listening. But um, <laughs> so uh, my current partner and I occasionally go to Nevada and visit the brothels there Mm -hmm. and we love to go there and um it's expensive so we don't get to go there very often but um Mm. we would go to celebrate our birthdays or whatever and i remember sitting we were sitting with one of the women at the at a table in the bar and um we were just chatting with two of the women and um and one of them said uh well, here's, oh, she was asking the older woman, she was like, so what happens in threesomes? And so we were all trying to tell her, you know, we were like, blah, blah, blah. and um, she was like, I've never done one before. And um, she was like, I'm kind of new to this. She was like, this is what happens when you're raised in a really strict church. And I was just laughing to myself. And I thought, well, there you go. Oh. The worker and the customer 
And this is where Strict Church brings you. <laughs> Excellent. And to the Barham Brothel. Yes. And, um, so uh, that has always stuck with me in terms mm -hmm. of just, again, in your face, church. This is where mm -hmm. we end up on one side of the sex equation or the other. Mm -hmm. um, uh, <laughs> I love it. Oh, gosh. Yes. I think... <laughs> I wish folks were more honest about their sex adventures because, like, so with all of my, you know, whenever I do my stand-up comedy routine, you can come. And so, um, <laughs> and all I'm going to do is I'm going to have a microphone and I'm going to sit in my little comfy chair and just be like, I have a few stories to tell you. These are all 100% real. <laughs> and just, that's all I'm going to do. And so... Um, but it's amazing to me because even when I just like talk about some of my adventures or con connections or people that I've run into or whatever, people are like, yeah, I ran into somebody just like that. Like that happened to me too. And I'm like, no, so it's not just me. And I, yeah. it's so powerful that like you were the cult, ex-cult and then she also strict church and you're just like, yeah, same. Look at yeah. us now, yeah. fully functioning and in a brothel. Oh, yeah. yes. It was really a powerful moment. I just thought that's, you know, the world needs to hear things like that, or the church world needs to hear things like that, you know? Absolutely. And, but you're right. It's just, it's so important to tell your stories and to you know, Europeans in general, as you, I'm sure, now, you know, they're so much more open about sexuality, and mm -hmm. Americans, we still have that fucking Puritan bullshit. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I just, which is why I'm open to telling it, even though I have teenagers who might be just horrified, but they also, I've tried to raise them to be very open and inclusive and, um, you know, sex is not a bad thing at all, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think we could all do a lot more of that and sharing personal stories is where is part of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I do want to know, like, how, what are you teaching your kids? Like... As oh, they are yeah. teenagers. That's fascinating. You know, um, thank goodness, they are in public schools, so public schools, uh, and we live in a very, very liberal California beach town, so yeah. um, so the public school is all over, like, sex education starting at fifth grade, and, like, so they know all the mechanics, they know probably more, they know more terms even than I do, I don't know mm -hmm. all the labels for everything, and, um, so I don't feel like I've ever had to, uh, you know, educate them, bring them up to speed. Um, but uh, I just try to be super open, and um, they will come up with. I wish I could come up with an example right now, but they'll they'll talk about. Um, oh, for a while, my son was just when he was going through sex education in like seventh grade or something. Uh, he just loved to talk about sixty nines. He just mm -hmm. loved to throw that out there. You know? Oh yeah. So, and he didn't want to really talk about the details with me because I was his mom, but he loved to just mention it. 69, ha, 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 you know? <laughs> and um, so, you know, and then, then I would take that kind of thread and I would I would run with it and I would try to, like, you know, ask a question or something. And usually it never went anywhere serious, but at least he knew I was just open to talking about things. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, then um, as far as theologically... Um, I almost wish I may, might have given them a little bit more to go on. I mean, like, they don't even know, they don't know the basics about Bible or anything. They, mm -hmm. 
They don't know any of it. <laughs> yes. I've raised them to be little heathens. Oh, yes. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, so two more things. So do you have sex advice for people, body advice as they, as just for in general, a human being, a human person, sex advice, body, or like how to reframe what, where they are to where they need to, where they can be. And then also, um, any like last minute, like I forgot to mention this. I really want to say this one more time because it's really important. Um, yeah. Huh. Okay. So wait, the first one, cause I, I, I think I can say, you know, my last thing is just, uh, trust yourself. And that's a super hard and that's a super open thing, but trust yourself. You are the only thing you have in life. Mm-hmm. But what, uh, the first question though was what? Sex advice or body advice. Sex like, advice. Yeah. Um, I guess probably trust yourself there too would be my, my thing. Um, and, uh, uh, don't ever, uh, I, I think preconceived notions are the killer for all creativity and all experience, um, sexual or not, but it certainly includes sexuality and, uh, yeah, pre, don't have preconceived notions at all. Mm. You know, don't, don't come to sex with, it should be this way or I shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. Um, be open to it. It's, it's your body's. Uh, experience, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ooh, amazing. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was incredible. Oh my gosh. Yay, so yes. Glad. How can people find you, support you, love on you, send you messages? Where are you located on the internet? Yes, I am. Um, they can find me right now on Instagram, um, mm-hmm. and that is the, the Glory Hole. Um, and uh, that's really where I'm where I'm positioned right now. I love I'm it. I'm gonna turn off this light here. Okay, there. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, and I'll I be hope sure you come talk to me. Come tell me your stories, um, or just come read. I'm gonna post a few memoir snippets a week, and um, you know, follow along. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Thank you so much for spending time with me on the podcast. Well, you yes. and I, we're going to stay in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are going to stay in touch. <laughs> thank you for having me so much. Nope. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Melissa, for sharing your story, your being vulnerable, um, and your humor and your passion for life and your passion for being a hoe. I am absolutely enamored by your writing and for you and your story that you share so for those of y'all who are interested in following and supporting sending coins to reading more about melissa's work and her life narrative you can find her on instagram at the glory hole t-h-e-g-l-o-r-y hole w-h-o-l-e Every few days, she posts uh, memoir excerpts, and they are absolutely phenomenally written. And they take you on this um, incredible journey, and it's just great. So find her, support her, send her some love. Also, she said that she loves talking to people. And so um, if something in this podcast episode resonates with you, you have a question, go chat with her. Um, She can't wait to hear from you. All right. Regarding my little podcast and my little project, I told y'all a little bit about myself already. 
I was a purity culture virgin for 31 years, and then I started my hoe phase. So I've been a hoe for, I don't know, three years, 12, I don't even really know anymore. But um, I, um, when I decided to transition from purity culture virgin into ho- the hoe life, I decided I wanted and was absolutely enamored by other people's hoe stories. And I wanted to... Um, and was so grateful to join in this community of people who were living their best lives with and without clothes on. So I um, strongly believe in the power of the narrative to set people free, to release us as a society and as individuals from grief and agony and shame. And um, there's just something amazing that happens when we can hear other people share their story. So if you want to share your story, come join the podcast. You can share publicly your name or you can remain anonymous. Your privacy will be protected um, because I get it. And so um, if if some people want to know like mm, what type of person I'm looking for um, to talk with. And there's basically two folks. So one, I'm looking for folks who are learning how to be kind to themselves and to their partners, how people are becoming or are fully embodied in their sexuality, um, learning about the power of their sexuality, um, and also the freedom that and their journey towards freedom and being free. Now, you do not have to even have a thousand partner sexual partners. You could have zero and you can still be a hoe. It's okay. The goal is to find people who are seek consensual coitus, are kind, unapologetic, free, fully embodied, and powerful human beings. So your story is welcome here, and I can't wait for you to join. So this is your call to action. Come share your story. Also, if you are um, in the mental health field or the sexual health field or you um, are in medicine or you have an organization that works with humans, people, um, to encourage them to be their best version of themselves and this this project, um, your passion, matches my this mission of encouraging everybody and everyone to claim or reclaim their sexual agency and their voice, join me and share what you do. If you've written a book and you want to talk about it, if you have, um, if you are working in the in um, the health field and you have a nugget of truth that other folks need to know, um, then come share on the podcast. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining my podcast episode for today. Um, please subscribe to Holy Coitus. Um, so that you can um, hear this podcast in the future podcast episode and also uh, future episodes. Mm. And find me on Instagram where I share my opinions and my commentary. So you can find me at Holy Coitus, which is at H-E-A-U-X-L-Y-C-O-I-T-U-S. Can't wait to chat with you on the Instagram. Bye-bye, friends.